Hear now these words from Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloths, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock, shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When, they saw, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Oh God, may the words that proceed from my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you. Oh God, you know my wrestlings with this passage, these passages this week. May those who hear this passage and also wrestle with it take comfort that you are with us each step along the way. Amen. A few days ago, I came across a list of notable books that had made the band book list at some time throughout history. I was surprised to see some of my favorite books on that list, one of which is Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. In 1931, a province of China decided to put this book on the list because it depicted animals with human characteristics. The censor thought that it would send a bad message to children because it equated animals with humans. I was also surprised to see Dr. Seuss's Green Eggs and Ham banned in 1965 in China for supposedly having Marxist underpinnings, and also the Grapes of Wrath banned in California during the Great Depression era for painting the Californian citizens in a bad light. Banned books, as you may know, are books that have been outlawed by a government as a censorship precaution. Rather than banning entire books, sometimes only chapters are censored and removed, or even language is changed. While I'm sure that we can all appreciate the censorship efforts to some extent, banning literature sometimes only leaves us with half-stories and half-truths. 
If children's ministries around the globe were to produce a banned book list of their own, you may be surprised at some of the books that you would find on there. Some of those well-known children's Sunday school stories would be on it, one of which is the story from which we read today of Jonah and the big fish. When I was in seminary, my Old Testament professor told us the story of Jonah from the Bible. Before that time, I had not known or had not realized that that sweet little felt Jonah and the cute bathtub play toy of a whale was actually part of a story that ended in Jonah throwing a temper tantrum and God saying, I just changed my mind. The professor must have recognized the class's disbelief because she challenged us to check all of the children's Bible storybooks that we had access to and see if that part of the story had been banned. I found that about 50% of them did not contain that portion of the story. And actually, just last week when I checked the storybooks here in our church, two of the five were in that same boat. I'm not sure if the intention is to prevent the children from seeing a biblical character throwing a temper tantrum, or if it's an attempt to reserve the exposure to the notion that God changed God's mind to a later age. But the great tragedy of banning these stories is that we miss the crux of the biblical story, and that is the narrative of the king of Nineveh. And while you and I may sit and stand here and mourn the plight of these young children that are without these censored story details, it is notable to note that even this part of the story is not included in the lectionary. So it's possible that even in adulthood, we might not have been exposed to it. So what's so intriguing about what the king of Nineveh has to say? Well, it began with the warning that Jonah gave to the Ninevites. He said, 40 days more and Nineveh will be overthrown. Remember, this is what God had called him to prophesy over that great city, and it landed him in the whale's belly because he did not. When Jonah finally relented and proclaimed the message, then the king, having no prior desire to follow the God of Israel, tells the people to repent and to change their ways. And here's the key line. Because who knows? God may relent and change God's mind. He may change and turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. As I hear these words, I envision the king telling his advisors, I don't know, let's just try it. Now that statement is something that I may tell my husband in response to a recipe or maybe even a way of doing something, but that response would not be a risk that I would take with higher stakes, such as making amends to a god of another nation just because someone from the enemy lines proclaimed the destruction of my city. Though. We must note that it is not unusual for nations to change gods every once in a while as their political climates changed. But still in our context, it does seem unusual with this particular political power. To provide us a bit of context to the story, Nineveh 
was the capital city of Assyria. Assyria was the nation that uprooted the northern kingdom of Israel and exiled all of its inhabitants to Babylon. The Assyrians were military enemies of the Israelites, although the Israelites by themselves stood no chance against them. If you recall from the Old Testament, the prophet Nahum, Nahum called the city vile and labeled it the bloody city full of lies and bounty. The same verbiage in Jonah's warnings appears in the warning of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's no wonder that Jonah did not want to go to that city and proclaim its destruction. He might have seen it as a death sentence. You may have also noticed that the term king in this passage has been applied to a city. Though it is an ambiguous term, it's possible that we can just guess that maybe it was a governor, perhaps, or at least a governing authority of some kind that had the ability to change the religious atmosphere, because that's exactly what he did. So what caused this king to declare such a strange turnaround and start worshiping a different god? Well, the movement began with the people, according to verse 5. That verse says that the people believed God, and they proclaimed a fast, and everyone great and small put on sackcloth, which means they were repentant. It goes on to say, when the news reached the king, then he did what the people did. Now, it's not probable that this movement or any of them like it came about democratically because that's just not what they did back then. But given that this is a story about a man who was swallowed up by a large fish and spat back out, anything could be possible. Nevertheless, if it was for people or for king there must have been something utterly compelling about the message of Jonah. Or perhaps there was not. Like many other stories in the Bible, perhaps it was their blind faith that earned God's favor with them. The Bible is a collection of stories about persons who took near-foolish risk, even without much knowledge of God at all, to follow God. They went all in with their chips on the table. For example, Abraham. Abraham left his home country and pursued a land that an unfamiliar God claims to lead him to. Paul. Paul gave up a life of persecuting Christians to become an advocate for them. And the story that we read today of Simon, Andrew, James, and John along with the other disciples, giving up their lives to follow a man that could either be liar, lunatic, or lord, according to C.S. Lewis. What makes their stories even more risky is that their risks are not decisions that only affect themselves. They take this all-in risk with many others' emotions at stake. The brothers James and John left their nets, their fishing business, and more than anything, they left their father Zebedee sitting in the boat to pursue a life of feeding souls rather than feeding bellies. They gave up their contribution to the family business and their present livelihood therein. 
Though the Gospel of Mark does not, does not contain the command of Jesus to deny your family, as is given in Matthew and Luke, it does seem that this story is a close parallel to that concept. The brothers Simon and Andrew, also appearing in our story today, left their nets. They left their moderate incomes and their livelihood to follow Christ. But this segment of the story gives us added elements to the call narrative. For Jesus says to these two, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. What might it look like to fish for people? The two might have wondered. Here we are introduced to the element of curiosity and the power that it holds with those disciples. But is one's curiosity toward God that affecting that someone would risk everything to peer into Pandora's box and follow Jesus? Maybe the Holy Spirit and curiosity are closer friends than we give them credit to be. Curiosity involves risk, a risk to be changed at what one discovers. It's dangerous. The adventure of this curiosity can bring us on difficult paths and through switchbacks. And for those whom curiosity is their fuel, it becomes gripping, occupying one's mind, heart, and passions, something that the risk-taking characters of today's story might have experienced. The author of the interpretation commentary on Mark gives an illustration that I would like to adapt to this notion for us today. He writes this, In a crowded airline terminal, hundreds of persons are scurrying in dozens of directions. Above the steady buzz of noise, a voice booms through a loudspeaker. Flight 362 is now arriving at gate 23. Will passengers holding tickets for New York please check in at gate 23? You will be boarding soon. Some people, of course, never hear the announcement and continue on their way. Others hear it, but having reservations on another flight, pay no attention. Some, however, who want to go to New York and who have been nervously awaiting such an announcement, look up expectantly, check their ticket for the flight number, gather their baggage, turn around, and set out with some urgency for gate 23. From this illustration, it looks that those who were wanting to go to New York, their passion and their curiosity, and whether or not they would actually make it there, consumes their minds and hearts, so they are attentive to the process and the journey of arriving. Like the airport illustration, the characters today have heard an announcement from Jonah and from Jesus. They could have been disinterested because they already had tickets on another flight. They worshipped other gods. They had other career aspirations. But instead, they headed urgently to the gate of God's kingdom out of their curiosity to know God. Perhaps that's the work of the Holy Spirit in the mind of our curiosity. It's stories such as these in Scripture that makes my heart sink into the reality of my own character. 
I'm left with a mixture of reverence and even a bit of jealousy at the presence of their courage, what I talked about to the children in the children's moment. It seems that the authenticity of their seemingly reckless faith is something that we had once left behind in our younger years. And the thought of turning over everything for little promise of yield belongs only to a crowd with less risk and less responsibility. We've become too established for that. But the characters in today's stories urge us to be open to the possibility of letting loose the establishments that we find ourselves in and be more open to the risk of shifting sands and to follow God into this unknown. A new movie that's out in theaters now tells the story of a group of youngsters that risk their lives overturning their stereotypical yet established roles. It's the remake of Jumanji, a 1990s movie where a board game comes to life. In this new version, four students who have little in common except detention together are pulled into a video game where they must face the dangers of the jungle to get home. In the movie, the viewer is constantly on guard with the characters in the film, and they ask at each challenge, well, what if it's a trap? The group bonds together and commits an urgency to get home and has at their driving force fear without paying much attention to risk. After a while, they kind of stop asking themselves, well, what if it's a trap? Because the desire to get home is greater than the risk of losing life and limb. This movie challenges us challenges us to ask ourselves, have our established selves bred a fear of disestablishment, of shifting sands, of changing up our life a bit from time to time? How often do you and I bypass an opportunity because it is a great risk, because we think that there may be something in it that might be a trap, we might get caught up in a sticky spot that we can't get ourselves out of, so we let that opportunity fly by us. Now, I don't advise any of us to continue down a path after we have run out of breadcrumbs to help us to get back. But what's so wrong with curiosity and pursuing it? What if God calls out to us out of our boats and urges us to take up a shift in mindset a shift in our own mission, values, and our future vision? What if God's call rings out through the streets of the city and rallies for us to shift our roles, our roles at work or school, at home, in the community, even at church? Will our fears hinder us from leaving our nets and following him? According to the king of Nineveh, who knows? God may change God's mind. God may shift the established order. God may risk God's own identity by doing something different in the world. God may be calling you and calling me to a life apart from our nets. A life apart from the gods that may have crept into our lives. 
as it was for them, it is now for us, what Jesus proclaimed in our passage from Mark today. The kingdom of God is near to us. Believe in the good news. That good news that God does not turn away from our established selves, but rather uses them in new and dangerously adventurous ways. Where might your curiosity of God's call lead you? Let's pray together. Oh God, it is much easier said than done. It's a nice passage to take off the shelf from time to time, God, and to see what the characters in your story of Scripture have done, to honor them, to point to them and say, look how great they are. It is difficult, however, God, for us to take up a lifestyle that is open to shifting sands. We pray that as we leave this space, that you would remind us that risk is great and your kingdom is greater. God, give us a discerning mind that we are not reckless in the things that we do. Yet, God, we do allow our trust in you to be greater than what we have now. We are thankful for the gift of your son that offers us a call and teaches us how to live in our very own calls. And We pray that we may be able to follow in his footsteps in whatever way he points us. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.